Hi, thanks for joining us on the Estate Agents podcast and hopefully you enjoyed the Kickstart 2019 and the year is now well underway and proving successful. This morning I'm joined by my co-presenters as always, Partners in Crime, Stephen Brown and Luke St. Clair. Morning guys. Good morning. Good morning. And today we have a guest. We do. Mr. Day, please introduce yourself. Good morning everybody, Mike Day. 44 years in the business, started when I was three. (laughs) So, Mike, many of our listeners will be familiar um, with yourself. Could you just explain what your role is, how you've ended up where you are, um, and just give um, give our listeners a little bit of a, a breakdown on yourself, please? Of course. Thank you. Um, good morning, everybody, or good afternoon, depending on wherever you're listening. Um, as I said, 44 years in the business, worked my way through uh, the ranks. I was a partner in a firm in the 80s, which went to the Prudential. Uh, I ended up as regional MD there. When they bailed out, I joined Connells, and I was on the main board at Connells for, uh, I was there for around 12 years. Last 16 years, I've had my own business, and I spend my time primarily mentoring businesses, helping them with strategy, organization, etc do a lot of training, mainly in areas of management and compliance, uh, and a little bit of marketing, uh, enough to keep me out of mischief and uh, hopefully provide some uh, benefits to the industry. Uh, you could you could say, Mike, you've been doing that for a long time and an exceptional job, um, highly respected in the industry. Um, so thank you for coming on this morning. So 1st first of June, tenant fee ban. Um, some agents I'm sure you come across are incredibly prepared some agents you come across um, still don't know that there's a tenant fee ban happening on the 1st of June even <laughs> though it's been even though it's been spoken to for a while so um, what tips suggestions do you have because I'm sure there's some agencies out there that potentially could be losing a quarter uh, quarter of their revenue maybe even all their profits are wiped up just by that Yep, I think um, as with most things in the industry, you obviously see a polarisation of uh, operations here. And um, the biggest issue, I think, for agents is lack of planning. And um, I think uh, I'm not particularly impressed with some of the professional bodies who were perhaps allowing people to think that this may not happen or not happen in the way that it is. And that led to some complacency. But um, I see a lot of businesses that... um, have been working on this for over a year and have put things in place, but there are at least um, half the industry, I think, has probably done nothing and is waiting to see what happens. Now, it's not going to suddenly change on the 1st of June from the point of view uh, of your loss of revenue, but of course, over the following year, you're not going to be able to uh, take Uh, revenue out of a lot of the areas that you do at the moment and therefore um, I think anecdotally it's probably 15 to 20 percent of the average firm's revenue which could of course as you said Stephen be the profit margin so main thing people need a plan people need to analyze their business they need to know their numbers because if you don't know where you are now it's very difficult to plan how you're going to get anywhere. So really drill into the business and know the numbers and identify the areas where you can make changes, tweaks, whether that's in pricing, systems, people, whatever, um, to go forward. That's um, we, so that's very interesting, Mike, because th- this tenant fee ban, it's, it's not just suddenly been announced on us, is it? It's, it's been coming for a long time. Um, and if if you were 
giving a couple of tips to to the business owners or lettings managers that are responsible for their own profit and loss for their departments. What kind of numbers do they need to be looking at? They, they, they certainly need to know where every line of their revenue is coming from. They need to understand their business. I'll give you an example. Um, a lot of letting agents say to me, we're doing 10 or 20 lets a month or something, and they feel quite comfortable with whatever their figure is. So they know how many instructions they're getting. They know how many lets they're doing. But actually, if you break that down, what they're often talking about is relets. So they say they're doing 20 lets a month, but the reality is that's 20 properties. They're just churning because they've come up, a tenant has vacated and they've re-let it. Now that's fine and you need to do that, of course, but it means you're not adding any new business. So a lot of the businesses aren't actually breaking their business down to the next stage and seeing where they can apply some uh, uh, pressure points and some action uh, to bring about a change. And um, so you've seen this quite common that there are a lot of agents out there that, that, that simply don't know their numbers. Not to the degree that they should do. Um, you know, they're skimming the surface. They know that they bring in X amount of money a year, but they haven't broken that down into revenue streams from, say, um, tenant find or let only or fully managed. And then the breakdown between whatever they make from maybe administration fees, from markups on products or other services, um, because these are the areas that somebody's going to have to change if they're going to mitigate or indeed maximise their potential after the ban. Um, because as we, we know, effectively, you're not going to be able to charge a tenant for anything. So you've either got to put that cost onto the landlord in some way, shape or form, absorb it, or add new revenue streams to make up the the shortfall. No, ab ab absolutely, and um, I think it, it would probably be quite eye opening for a lot of businesses out there when they start looking at their numbers, um, but also then realizing the potential that they've had for the past year, two oh. years, three years, five years, and all of the, that lost lost revenue but also what are you actually providing to your landlords so every time a landlord asks you to do something is that actually within your your terms of conditions so i all of a sudden are you suddenly doing all these extra free bits where you could actually be charging for them so are you Absolutely. doing are you doing more inspections than you should be are you suddenly running around getting keys cut that that, that all takes time and there's a cost associated to the business and and we, we've done a, a review of that in the past uh, 18 months um, and it's amazing what all of a sudden uh, you think gosh we're, we're doing all of this but we've not been charging any extra for it so we started off at this service level we're now offering this service and we and it's offering a good service but ultimately someone has to pay has to pay for that and and also communicating that with with your colleagues because quite often they're quite happy to just, yeah we'll do that we'll do that um and it's communicating with them where the where the boundaries are so if you bring in tiers of service or you say we just simply don't do this or we do it but there's a charge associated with it absolutely i think um, it's crucial that an agent's services match their fees or rather their fees match their services um, so, you know, for example, on property management, you might get a quote for a piece of work or something. The landlord says, oh, can you get another quote? You get another quote. You've saved them a tenner, but it's cost you an hour and a half of time to save the landlord a tenner. Yeah. Um, so that's clearly not clever. Um, 
property inspections you mentioned, a lot of people on their fully managed contracts have a number of property inspections built into that, that contract, probably quite rightly. But I've seen agents ranging from naught to four a year. Yeah. Now, two a year probably sounds sensible, maybe after three months and nine months and then on a rolling six-month basis. But in which case, if you're going to do a third or fourth because the landlord wants you to, then there needs to be a charge. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, break it's that detail that is that is the key and like you when you've looked at your own business look you've seen areas where maybe you've been doing if you like almost too much yeah um there are there are situations where people have got sometimes fees built into their contracts and then they just don't charge them yeah which is even more incredible <laughs> yeah yeah so again i think it's uh, a lack of sometimes understanding or knowledge within agencies that that they don't sometimes uh, want two key documents that you should be getting all your colleagues to read is one, your terms and conditions, but secondly, your tenancy agreement, because they're, they're probably the mo most important two documents within property management and lettings, I would imagine. A absolutely. And uh, I think, uh, you know, what I call a sort of an a la carte approach, where you probably have some sort of headline rate for providing a particular service, but then there is an a la carte menu of a whole raft of other things, which you are able to deliver, but are being charged, can suddenly make a, a huge difference. And, and like you said, a lot of agents are realising that there was 25,000, 50,000, 100,000 pounds worth of revenue that actually they could have been earning in the last year or two. Yeah. But they're now going to put in place to earn in the next year or two. Um, but it's taken the tenant fee ban for people to realise that they've got to make their businesses more efficient and more effective. It's definitely been it's an eye-opener, hasn't it? Mm. It's, it? It's a good thing from the point of view of making people look at their businesses. And, uh, I mean, I've had some clients, we've done some fairly um, you know, major changes. So, for example, um, I've got a, a client who no longer does tenant find. They, they do recollect and they do fully manage. Now, this obviously has the advantage of locking the customer into them for the longer term and all of that, which is great. Um, but what it's done is they've moved all of their fees onto what I call the drip. They're taking their fees on a monthly basis, rolling monthly basis, rather than a lumpy fee up front on a tenant find. Now, we had to work out the cash flow implications because, of course, um, it, it meant there was an immediate drop in income. But what they got was an additional 2% on all of their fees. And we started that 15 months ago. So as they enter 2019, they've actually recouped all of that lost lumpy cash flow. And they're actually rolling ahead around about 20% higher than they were before. So they're well ahead of the game. And it's about being ahead of the curve, isn't it? And what I just wanted to ask, obviously, yourself and, and also Stephen and Luke, what, what are businesses putting in place um, to compensate for the tenant fee ban? Obviously, that's one example. Um, Luke, Luke, any others? Yeah, so um, with the tenant fee ban, do, do you see there being opportunities where some businesses aren't going to be viable anymore? Or perhaps it's it's that turning point for a lot of business owners to think, you know what, time time to call it a day and there may be opportunity to acquire portfolios well i think you know one of the ways of uh, uh, of, of dealing with this is obviously to grow 
and get more revenue, although you've got to look at the productivity of your business, your capability of, of handling. I have no doubt that there will be opportunities to um, acquire other people's portfolios uh, and businesses. There's a lot of agents went into lettings after the financial crash around about 2008 and have built up a bit of a lettings business. Um, but they're, you know, they're really tinkering with it. And I'm not sure that with the tenant fee ban that all of those will continue. But I think going back to Andy's point, the productivity is key, improving productivity so that you're getting more out of whoever's working in your, your business. So your processes and systems, and these could be technology led. Um, as many of you know, I'm a director of a business called Techlet, and we have a lettings platform that automates an awful lot of this stuff to improve productivity, but also works with API partners so it can drop in and if you like sell or push other products along the journey of the tenancy and the renewal. So there's a lot of things happening um, there. Um, there are a lot of services like utility switching, broadband, um, various insurances, tenants, contents, landlord liability, rent guarantee, a whole raft of products that you can offer. Deposit replacement, Deposit replacement, I think, will take 50% of the market in the next five years. And that's a product that you can sell to tenants, providing it's an optional sale. Or if you've got the landlord to pay for it, you would be offering their properties as move in for nothing. So there are some business opportunities there if people go looking. Technology, I think, is, is moving forward at a pace. It's big decision changing technology, putting in new software or working with things. And therefore, the planning. And the, uh, the investigation, the analysis is crucial before you do any of these things. And that's where you come in. I'd like to look at a, a different side of your business and, and, and another string to your bow, if I may, Mike. I've known you for many years and I've been on your compliance courses. Um, and, and you're still uh, in business. And I'm still in business, which is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm really interested because there's been a a huge discussion I think it's fair to say Luke and Stephen in our group recently when a question was asked between our um, mastermind group um, about consumer protection from unfair trading regulations and I know that's a key topic for yourself yeah. um, and it's a bit of a morbid one to start the day with but it surrounds death um, mm. and so the question was uh, if a client has um, committed suicide or um, yeah, taken their life basically in the property, do you have to disclose it to potential purchasers? My view on that was that it could alter their transactional thought-making process and therefore it should be disclosed. And there were others in the group that said it's just a death. Then that question evolved into what about if it incorporated or there was some form of serious crime or whether it was a death of natural causes? Okay. Um, every training course I've run, and I've probably had, I don't know, 1,500 people or something through uh, consumer protection training in the last couple of years, um, this, this particular question uh, comes up. And like all legislation, um, it's not 100% black and white. There are shades of grey. Not sure if there's 50, but there's certainly quite a lot. Um, <laughs> and the, the death question, if it doesn't crop up as a question, I actually always raise it. Um, and the general view, um, and I, the view that I would take is the view of the ombudsman. Because, of course, if you end up in a dispute with a customer, uh, client, the chances are, if you don't resolve it, it's going to end up with the ombudsman. 
So if you take the Ombudsman's view, you know what the position is, and the Ombudsman's view is very clear. If in doubt, basically disclose. Um, my view on the death question is, if that is the reason why the property is coming to the market for sale or rent, because of course these regulations do cover both sales and lettings, unlike some of the other regulations. Um, if it is the reason why the property is coming to the market, so it's a probate sale, for example, then it should be revealed. If you're selling a 15th century cottage, there could have been 20 people dying that over the last four or 500 years. You're not going to know, and it's irrelevant. Um, it will crop up because it will come out in the inquiries. It will come out in pre-contract inquiries therefore your purchaser um, in, in a sales situation is going to find out anyway so why not reveal early and headed off at the past if they're not going to go ahead well at least you don't go ahead right at the beginning rather than end up with an abort some some way down the path when you've annoyed everybody thank you for that um mike i go into a lot of companies as well similar to you and compliance is a big issue um, with um, the majority of agents. What um, and where do you see the main issues that agent um, lack compliance and need a little bit of guidance from your point of view? Well, I think the, the ones that scare people are the ones where it's going to cost them money, um, either in terms of fines or in terms of compensation payments. And uh, we'll touch on uh, money laundering in just a second. But going back to consumer protection, of course, we don't see many prosecutions under consumer protection regulation because, of course, what happens is the agent basically buys people off. They've uh, failed to do something or they've, you know, because telling somebody the wrong thing is an offence, but actually not telling them something you should be telling them is also an offence. So, you're, you know, you've got to get that right. There's no figures, but my estimates from what I know from my clients, I've got around about 700 clients, if I multiply up what I know, I get a figure in excess of £10 million in compensation payments a year being paid by agents. Wow. Might be 250 quid here, £1,000 here, just to, just to make the problems go away. So we're not seeing prosecutions. With money laundering, of course, policed by HMRC, we're seeing fines and admin fees being levied by HMRC and, and prosecutions. So... It's a different angle, but both are key. And both with some simple systems and an understanding amongst the staff are, in the main, relatively easy to deal with. Okay. Would you, can you give us some, some tips for some agents out there? You know, I know you've been into a few of my clients and given them your compliance MOT, um, which, mm -hmm. which certainly gave them a shake up. Uh, so is there anything on there specifically agents should be looking for um, that they can do to improve that? Well, at the very basic level, if you let's take AML, let's take money laundering. Um, there are half a dozen or so things that you've got to do. You've obviously got to be registered with HMRC. You have to have a money laundering policy which sets out what you do. The bits that people aren't doing is you should have a company risk assessment that looks at your business and says the type of business you do and applies a risk level to that each different category of business. Then when it comes to individuals, 
everybody knows or should know and should be checking the ID of the people they're dealing with, the sellers, the buyers. Um, so they find out the ID. So that's some photographic ID and that's some address ID. So we know who we're dealing with. But the bit that agents are not doing is the risk assessment. And there should be a risk assessment that asks some key questions. So in the case, for example, of a buyer, the real issue is where is the money coming from? Now, I get a lot of agents say to me, oh, we get proof of funds. And I say, well, what does that mean? And they say, oh, we saw a bank statement with uh, you know, a million quid in a bank account. And I said, well, when did the money go in? When did it go out? It might have gone in a minute before they printed it. It might have come out a minute afterwards. I said, it's not whether they've got the money that's important. It's where did it come from? There's never been any incidents of money laundering and for money laundering, re-tax evasion in the main, there's never been a case where the person hasn't had the money. You can't commit a money laundering offence unless you've got the money. So knowing they've got the money isn't really the issue. It's where the hell did they get it from? And, and what would you advise then, Mike? How would you advise that a client traces that and, and, and has that audit trail on file? Just to, just to give away a freebie this morning to our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Well, first and foremost, a risk assessment. So you ask some questions, okay? A simple document that asks some questions, which would include, in the case of a buyer, where's the funding coming from? Now, if somebody's getting a 90% mortgage, you know, then fine. You know, there's some other checks and balances. The, the risk is lower. But if it's 100% cash, um, ask a question. Use your judgment. You can, you can obviously dig and ask for more evidence, depending on, you know, whether or not you feel you're getting the right answers but if you for example you're selling a property to a, a guy who is i don't know the chairman of uh, barclays bank um now he's probably a politically exposed person we'll talk about those in a moment but nevertheless um, he earns five million pounds a year and he tells you he's saved up a million pounds in cash over the last 10 years that's probably quite realistic but if the guy comes in who with respect sweeps the roads outside your office and tells you he's saved a million quid from his salary in the last five years, it probably isn't. So we have to use a bit of common sense, but the key is to document it. HMRC might disagree with your outcome, but you will get clobbered if you haven't shown and demonstrated that you've been through a process. That's great. And you mentioned so, politically exposed person. Um, sorry, Luke, cutting in there. Um, politically exposed person, what, what, what's a PEP, Michael? A politically exposed person, and the only way you can do these checks, PEPs and sanctions, it's known as, um, is to use one of the online, or the, the best way of doing it is to use one of the online uh, AML ID check providers. Now, I would still personally take uh, documents. Uh, I would still like to see a passport and, and these sort of documents. So I had those physical elements. But PEPs and sanctions, the online providers, their databases are kept up to date pretty much in real time. Um, and a PEP is a politically exposed person. So this is somebody who is perhaps working for um, maybe um, a foreign government or, or something similar like that. Or it could be a high ranking official, as I indicated in, in, for example, a banking group or whatever. And they are potentially at greater risk or their associates as well, at greater risk of perhaps blackmail and being involved in this type of activity. And then you've got sanctions, which could be individuals who've had some sort of track record of um, 
it could be misdemeanors or, or whatever, or people where the, perhaps the funding is coming from countries that are on the sanctions list. Um, so the, the sort of person, you know, we, we all know about the, um, the stuff that comes out of places like Nigeria and China and Russia. You know, I still get 10 emails a day from people telling me that they're the widow of the ambassador to somewhere or other who's got <laughs> And, and I keep answering, but I've never seen the money. But um, the, you know, so there are certain countries in the world that on the sanctions list where there is a higher risk. And the whole thing about money laundering compliance is it's risk based. And, and therefore, some transactions are very low risk. Some transactions, particularly if it involves, you know, perhaps money coming in from overseas and uh, people that you haven't met and all of these things obviously increase the risk. Your approach to it should increase and be more vigilant and diligent the higher the risk. And that's why you need to have a process that does that so that you can demonstrate that because you identified one situation as being different to another, you went an extra step or whatever in finding out uh, and satisfying yourself that the deal was, was, was reasonable. Um, so, um, so on that, and not wanting to scare any of our listeners, because like like Andy, our, we, we've put our team through um, your uh, CPR course, uh, a money laundering course, um, and there there can be quite severe penalties, uh, which should act as the deterrent to make sure you get your your house in order. So, what what are the the penalties out there and consequences because um, it's not just monetary value is it? it what what's out there for, for business owners and people involved in the business as a consequence of not being compliant well let me you know blatant plug here but let me tell you all of the downsides are far more expensive than coming on one of my training courses um the the downsides on on the aml fines are unlimited so that's quite a big number um, wow. and there are and there have been fines in excess of £200,000. So, you, you know, for most businesses, um, that would be pretty painful. Yeah, okay. well, I know so, we had well, we had one business in Leicester, uh, for example, fortunately not ours, but one business in Leicester that was fined for non-compliance um, of money laundering. And it wasn't because they'd found someone that had been laundering money, but um, it was because they didn't have the policies in place. Correct. Failure. Nearly all of the, the fines, actually, I'm not aware of any case where an agent has actually been actively engaged in money laundering. But there have been lots of cases where the agent hasn't had robust enough processes and systems. They haven't trained their staff. They haven't done all the things they should be doing. And they've, they've failed, if you like, an HMRC inspection. And they are doing more and more of these because... Um, you probably saw a report that recently showed that less than half of 1% of suspicious activity reports to the National Crime Agency are being made by estate agents, yeah. which means 99.5% are being made by lawyers and lenders and others involved. Well, that's just unbelievable to think that, you know, estate agents, are, you know, are so low down that list, yeah. particularly I think we're at the catalyst stage of the transaction we usually get involved before some of these other organizations um and so you know hmrc are really stepping up their attention they've got a campaign called flag it up at the moment they're really stepping up their game in terms of crawling all over estate agents so um, wow. it's it's not so much a question of whether you'll get a visit it's when you'll get 
a visit. Yeah. Well, nothing to be I think, I think you need wrong. to um, certainly, certainly be conscious of the Colombian buyer with a twitchy nose and a suitcase full of cash. That's the one. over his shoulder but most of these things seriously um you you know people think of money laundering they think of terrorism they think of big crime and whatever and and there is an element of that what we're mainly talking about is tax evasion we're talking about the guy who's you know siphoning some money off here or there to avoid paying some form of taxation on it and um that's clearly um you know I mean, let's be honest, I shouldn't think there's many of your listeners um, who haven't paid somebody cash for a little job around their house. That, of course, is breaking the law. It's a, it's a black market. It's somebody is evading paying their VAT or tax or, or whatever. Now, you multiply that up on the scale with property and it's a real issue. Thanks, Mike. And I think the big learning for our listeners and certainly the the reminder for me is that as you believe the risk increases, that's when your level of investigation and and, and, uh, risk assessment should increase as well. Um, I think that's that's really valuable. Thank you. And ongoing, ongoing as well. So it's, you know, a lot of agents are treating this as a a hit when they put a property on the market or they introduce a buyer or a tenant um, and they do their AML ID checks at that point and they go tick and put it in the file. But things change. Other information happens during a transaction and and things like the buyer decides to change his solicitors halfway through the transaction. That should be a big warning bell as to why and one should go back and have another look at it and make sure something hasn't developed that is untoward so it it's meant to be a living breathing situation not a one-hit wonder that was uh, yeah definitely and sometimes there are genuine reasons why someone changes solicitors um but to be like you say that that needs to kind of put put that case on red alert to just carry out those further investigations so um mike it's been a real pleasure having you on and i think everyone listening is probably going to be frantically going into the office now thinking gosh we we need to uh need to review and carry out a bit of a mini audit and and that was one of the reasons why we wanted to get you on the podcast because your knowledge is uh, is is helped the industry over over those uh, 40 plus years and thank you very much to our listeners uh for giving us your ear as normal uh, it's been a real pleasure if you would like to find out more information about the podcast head over to eapodcast.co.uk or check us out on the facebook page uh, of course if you've enjoyed this podcast uh please rate and review us on itunes with five stars if it's anything less um find a different podcast to review so um <laughs> But uh, thank you very much, uh, Mike, Stephen and Andy. And thank you. Goodbye from me. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks, Mike. Cheers, Cheers. guys. Thank you very much.